for the week of November 15th, 2020. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. Today, we are going to discuss the third episode of Season 2 of The Mandalorian, Chapter 11, The Heiress. This episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, and in it, Mando successfully reunites the passenger with her husband and is told where he can find more information on the location of other Mandalorians. Mando is betrayed by the Corrin informant, who attempts to steal Mando's Beskar armor by trapping Mando and the child in a tank with a hungry Mamacore, hoping to retrieve the armor after it has been digested. Just when hope seems to be lost, Mando is rescued by a group of Mandalorians who have valuable information they're willing to exchange for assistance with their own mission. John, what did you think of this episode? Oh, we're starting to get into some meat. Uh, we have our first on-screen appearance of a fan favorite from Clone Wars slash Rebels. Uh, so yeah, things are starting to kind of cross-pollinate with the the other Star Wars lore, whereas this show has always kind of consciously been off in the fringes and hasn't interacted too much with the larger star Wars world. So, uh, kind of cool that we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're starting to up the ante and, and get into some real stakes here with these new characters. And what a way to do it. I mean, season one was all about establishing the Mandalorian and this mission. And then season two, they start bringing in all of these different aspects that I think Star Wars fans in general were hoping that Disney would do with this kind of new era of Star Wars. And man, did we get spoiled in this episode because (laughs) there is so much to digest here. Like you said, an awesome thing to get a character that was created For an animated show in a live action television series, it is excellent. I don't think this episode could have been any better. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely in my, I'd say, top five. Like There there was a lot of satisfying stuff we got this week. So, uh, yeah, I'm grinning. I I hope that's coming through on the audio, but uh, I'm excited to break it all down. What do we want to start with? Well, let's go ahead and start exactly where this episode begins. We have Mando, the passenger, and of course the child. They're kind of limping their way through the space and get to this planet. They finally arrive, and then as the Razor Crest is going into the atmosphere of this planet, we have a very familiar callback to a Ron Mm -hmm. Howard type of film. And this was, in fact, confirmed by Bryce Dallas Howard on Twitter. She said this is absolutely what she was trying to do, was she was trying to mimic what happened with Apollo 13, which, of course, is an Oscar-winning film, Oscar-level cinematography, Oscar-level everything, and she was able to perfectly parallel the two of these, and it was just, it was a spectacle to watch. I was amazed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one shot that's very uh, Apollo 13 slash Ron Howard mm-hmm. that I noticed. It's It's kind of a shot where they're mimicking an extreme zoom lens mm-hmm. and if you're zoomed in on something that's moving really quick off in the sky you need to have very precise camera work to track it to move your camera in line with it but just because of the way humans are there's no like perfectly smooth way to track an object like that so you get a little bit of jerkiness in the frame while it's trying to keep track with something and and because you're zoomed in so far that every motion of the camera is exaggerated and so they they played with that uh, visual style uh, when the ship was coming in. So there was one little shot there that I thought, oh, yeah, if ever there was a, a wink and a nod 
to Apollo 13. That's it right there. And obviously, well, I mean, it's the man's daughter directing the episode. So mm-hmm. why we wouldn't assume that that was intentional, but obviously, yeah, if she's been forthright about it. I, I think it's a very obvious thing to pick up on and uh, well handled. It, it, it felt very kinetic. Like, it, it's a nice way to frame that kind of action because really you're just kind of sitting in the cockpit and it's just light all around you. There's not a lot to see, but mm-hmm. to give you kind of a sense of scope over the water and, and scope in comparison to the city, uh, all of that just kind of that, that shot does a lot of heavy lifting in, in helping to orient you in the world and kind of how fast the ship's coming to earth. So yeah, some good direction going on here. And this is Bryce Dallas Howard's second episode directing Mandalorian. And both episodes she's directed so far have been very actiony based. I mean, there's a lot of action she captured here. And I mean, the social media is exploding like, hey, we're we're wanting solo two. Let's bring it back. And they're calling for her to possibly head it up. So anything else that she can do for Star Wars. I'm excited for her resume is already exceeding expectations to direct more Star Wars material. It was awesome to see. And it's also awesome to see uh, Ron Howard himself acknowledge all these things and celebrate his daughter on social media, just taking time to really kind of repost these things. And man, what it would be like to be (laughs) in the room with the two of them as they're watching this episode, because it was truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I I, you got to have a little bit of envy <laughs> for that family. Um, they're they're part of the Lucasfilm family uh, generationally now, and I'm just happy anytime the larger fandom embraces someone at Lucasfilm because it can be so divisive sometimes when something is a more polarizing episode or movie or whatever. So yeah, when when the fans find someone that they like and they're like, yeah, give them a movie, give them a series, uh, that 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 just makes me happy because we we want directors that have the voice that the fans want because nobody likes drama but more than that i just really want to see people that really get star wars and and can really turn out something that feels true to the the franchise and and to the genre and uh obviously you know they had a lot of confidence from her first episode that she could come back and and do another one and obviously you know like i said i'm grinning so she's two for two in my books Mm mm-hmm Absolutely. And speaking of embracing this next shot from this episode, we have the passenger that is embraced by her husband. They have been reunited. The eggs are safe from this point (laughs) forward. Uh, It looks like those eggs are going to get fertilized. Yeah. When we get down the road, we're going to talk about the the little touching tadpole scene. But yeah, I was still worried for these eggs right up to the very last scene and, you know, the subsequent tadpoles, because you never know, like there's been some dark humor with baby Yoda. So I wouldn't have been at all surprised if he'd pulled a fast one and absconded with one of their children. Uh, I'm glad they didn't go that route Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, yeah, that would have been a little creepy, but this was fun. And you called it. You said it looked like there was a frog person, but they were kind of blue in the trailer and maybe that's her husband. And that's exactly who it turned out to be. So good call on you. Apparently the males of the species are a little bit more flamboyant in their coloring. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was really uh, an emotional scene to capture here. I mean, you get mm-hmm. this sense that this passenger and we already talked about this last week, but this passenger has been separated from her husband right. and they have been searching throughout the galaxy to figure out a way to fertilize their eggs and save their family line. And they did so. And then, of course, we have the Mandalorian pointed in a kind of misdirection of sorts where he's kind of taken once again to another type of cantina restaurant that is on this right. little uh, planet with all the Mon Calamari and all these different uh, watery species. But then we get another callback and I'm really interested to see why they're going. So, you know, James Cameron 
Ridley Scott alien heavy on these <laughs> face grabber things because we got a face grabber that popped out of the, the little oatmeal uh, onto baby Yoda's face. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, they, they have, um, a roof mounted chowder sprayer. Cause I guess that's like the only thing they serve yeah. in this restaurant. And you do, you see a little lump come out of the spray and it, they don't dwell on it. Like there's no indication that that means anything, but yeah, there's a, there's a living squid in that chowder. Fun little homage. I, at this point, I don't know if they care so much about the alien homages, uh, as much as they just care about making sure every episode has something a little bit monstrous and otherworldly, mm-hmm. like we obviously get a much bigger example of that in about five minutes. But I think Star Wars has always had a love affair with grotesque mm-hmm. uh, man-eating creatures. So uh, it wouldn't be Star Wars if we didn't get some of that. And uh, yeah, just a, another fun little moment and played for laughs, right? This squid yeah. is too small to do any real damage. Obviously, they um, they call that back a little later too. And we get another fun scene that mm-hmm. has uh, a little bit more uh, stakes and uh, a little bit more drama for the baby when you actually see the the squids prey through its own eyes. Um, yeah, fun. I, I like all the creature work and I like the CG in this. Like it is stunningly good, very flawless. You don't get any of that, you know, jerky or uber smooth motion. It it really does play nicely. It feels like this is truly like cinema quality effects every step of the way with the show. And this was just a very small, subtle example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it truly was a spectacle to watch the whole episode because this is kind of massive landscape as well. This whole episode is taking uh, place on this water-based planet, and it's a lot of wide shots capturing what this looks like from a distance. Of course, mm-hmm. entering into the atmosphere and everything moving forward is it's truly cinematic, and it's you know it's up there with Game of Thrones where they decided, hey, this is a television show, but we're not going to take any shortcuts here, and we're going to capture right. this and of course, take advantage of these LED screens. It was, it truly is amazing. Um, now, what is once again que- in question is the Mandalorian's parenting skills here. Like, <laughs> you're just gonna, I know he's very skilled with a blade, but still stabbing <laughs> a, a creature that's on a child's face, that seems a little risky. But hey, it, 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 it's good for the laughs here in this very Star Warsy comedic episode. I got the impression that he was just basically poking its leg so that it would get distracted for a second mm. and fall back in the dish. Like I, I didn't think he was like really like going deep <laughs> where you might nick the baby. Um, yeah, but another fun moment, the the fact that they can play these little um, potentially deadly encounters for laughs, whether it's from the baby or from a squid. Mm. Uh, I like it. And I, and I like that this kind of tempers the way I was feeling about baby in the previous episodes because as much as it's weird to watch baby go after an egg or a little frog from Bryce Dallas Howard's episode last season, you got to remember everything in this galaxy just wants to eat everything else. And yeah. so like baby's no different than, <laughs> than these squids or anything else they encounter in this episode. So yeah, it's, it's uh it's all fair play in the star Wars universe. If there's something that can be eaten, you might as well just go for it. And then of course we have the Von Calamari bartender waiter guy who points right. the Mando in the direction of this Goran informant who has a nice attraction to Beskar. Now, there's something that I caught in the second time I watched it. I was trying to see if there's any more details on it, but it turns out that people with Beskar have come through right. this very outpost multiple times, which means that this Corrin guy, he has probably done this same exact yeah. thing to other people. Yeah, so the restaurant owner was just pointing them towards the last person he remembers seeing anyone with Beskar walk off with. Mm-hmm. And apparently, yeah, this uh, 
this little ruse that he pulls has worked a few times because they, they were pretty confident. Like everyone was playing it very cool on the boat. And uh, you see them talking off in their booth off in the corner. And you can tell that they didn't need a lot of planning to kind of know how this was going to go down. So yeah, yeah, again, Star Wars universe, everyone's just, you know, total lawlessness in this, this part of the galaxy. Uh, <laughs> the Mandalorian, I think might be a little naive when it comes to just following people on blind faith. We're, we're happy that the, the frog person didn't turn out to be deceptive yeah. in any way uh, that works in his favor in this episode. But otherwise, yeah, he just, he's constantly getting just the worst information and sent on the, the, the worst fetch quest. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm glad that this one takes a turn when, uh, when push comes to shove. And why else would you have a mama core on your boat, like in a little tank other than to feed it, you know, people with best car and then get the digestion piece. I mean, this is kind of, uh, you know, call back to return of the, the Jedi yeah. type of thing. Like let's feed yeah. this Mandalorian with this person with Mandalorian armor to this big beast. And then, um, of course the armor will be digested <laughs> sure. later on. Um, but it's really, incredible how far they took this i mean we see the child get swallowed whole by this gigantic momacore and then the mando really dives in there uh, to try to save it and it, this shows how much he cares for the child because he's not really paying attention to the rest of his surroundings he's not distracted by the people mm -hmm. that are actually trying to get him to dive into the tank he just goes for it because let's save the kid and then figure it out as we go um, yeah. But a really cool, cool scene here. And then we get Bo-Katan coming back and saving the day here. This was something that we knew was coming. We knew that we were getting her at some point in this season. But the third episode in and such an important role in this episode. I mean, she saves the Mandalorian and we find out. Some really, uh, some really cool information about the Mandalorians with the dialogue between Bo-Katan and, of course, our Mando. Yeah, so there's been a lot of speculation because we know that in uh, Rebels and Clone Wars, Mandalorians take their helmets off all the time. It's not really a thing. And even Death Watch, prior to you know the ones that kind of defected with Maul and kind of the the breakdown of of that situation, they took their helmets off. So there mm -hmm. there really wasn't that wasn't really a thing. So. When Favreau decided to introduce that to the galaxy, they needed to create some sort of reason why that was the case for Mando, but we've seen contradictions to that. And I think, I think they solved it very elegantly. The idea that when Death Watch was kind of splintered, mm -hmm. the, the ones that wanted to stay true to the cause, they got even more radicalized, even more ideological and really like doubled down on the old traditions. Mm -hmm. So they would have been ones that would have like looked into Mandalorian history and maybe found that there was a time when that was part of the creed. And so they just readopted it. So it was a fairly new thing that, that happened with the death watch faction <laughs> of Mandalorians. Um, so it's nice to have that clarified for us now. And it, it puts Mando in kind of an interesting spot because if he's kind of beholden to what, regular Mandalorians consider sort of a, an extremist cult and not really anyone that they care to cavort with. Well, what future does Mando have if, if Mandalore is reclaimed or, you know, like if, if there's some glorious restoration for Mandalorians, is he going to be on the outs because he's in league with these zealots that mm -hmm. will never be satisfied. Uh, so it raises a lot of potential um, moral dilemmas for Mando and, and who he's going to side with and where he's going to sort of, decide to let his loyalties lie so they they set up a really fun uh potential character situation for mando where he's gonna have to resolve how he feels about this and i really like 
just how subtly that was handled. They didn't dwell on it. It's just like, oh yeah, he's a child of the watch. And and you can kind of fill in the rest from what we've already seen of the Death Watch um, coverts. So this was this was really good uh, storytelling here, and it said everything it needed to say, and it said it mostly with looks. You know, yeah. Bo-Katan looks over at her her two um, you know lieutenants or whatever, and uh, they all kind of know what they're looking at. They're looking at oh, one of those guys. Yep. <laughs> um, so fun, a lot of fun. And it's really interesting, like you said, just the writing that went into this, because it was very creative and a very smooth way to explain this. I mean, we got uh, the reason that his Mandalorian Creed says this is the way because they're followers of the ancient way. And that's just mm. Bo-Katan just says people that are trying to reestablish ancient way. And it's kind of a light bulb moment. It's like, ah, that's why they say that. That's why they say yeah. this is the way. And then she uses this against him. And I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but she sure. ends up using the Mandalorian's oath of this is the way against him to kind of not necessarily guilt him into it because he's kind of stuck between a a rock and a hard place as it is, Mm -hmm. but uses this belief of his to make him shut up, if you will. But are you talking about when they're actually on the ship and he's like, I didn't sign up for stealing no ships. Are you talking about that? Yeah, and then she goes and she and she looks at him and she, she kind of gives him this smirk yeah. and says, "Well, yeah. this is the way." Um, yeah, see that that really kind of annoyed me because Bo-Katan is a good character, right? She's pragmatic and she she's willing to push the lines of pacifism that you know her sister was down with for the sake of the cause. So like she's she's one of those almost anti-heroes where you know that her goal is just, but the things that she's willing to do to get there isn't. But it's just interesting that at this point we're supposed to see her as a hero. These are the good guys. You know, he's fallen in league with more of his own and she just kind of plays him dirty there. And she knows that he's so ideologically bent by the, the death watch creed that he has to be honorable and he has to like, you know, stick to things no matter what. And so that's more of a sticking point for him. And it just kind of shows that, I don't know for a, for a hero, someone who's going to lead Mandalore, Bo-Katan, she's kind of compromised, you know, she's kind of given up a little bit of her humanity there. And so I, I just wanted more of a, you know, a true kind of uh, return of the King kind of hero that you can really Mm -hmm. get behind, (laughs) like, you know, some virtue being shown rather than uh, I'm going to just take advantage of whatever I can, even if it's one of my own. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, that's, that's like 20 minutes down the road here. We got a lot more to cover here. Um, We sure do. Cause she (laughs) saves the Mandalorian twice and her motives behind this are kind of clear. She would like his assistance on capturing this ship that she's lying about like this whole time like you said she's kind of this you know compromised you know character trait but to kind of point back to that we see her in the clone wars in the final season kind of use that very same guilt against obi-wan and so we have a very different bo-katan in the final season of the clone wars than we do in in rebels when we see her briefly there and it's one of those things that i'm wondering is this going to explain, is this season of Mandalorian or the coming season of Mandalorian going to dive deeper into her character development and see her go from this hell-bent mission on reclaiming whatever it is that she's trying to reclaim here to where we find her in in Rebels, where she's much more willing to kind of give up this same item to someone else? Mm. Yeah, uh, well, obviously, uh, the the ravages of the universe have taken their toll on her, right? Like this is another seven, eight years down the road from when we last saw her. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely a lot of story to tell. And we know that, you know, she's been 
beaten down on more than a few occasions. So she has good reason for being the way she is, but there is a whole section of Mandalorian history from where we kind of left off. Well, right at the end of the the last little bit of Clone Wars, mm-hmm. the the siege of Mandalore, we still don't know exactly what happened with the Empire in that intervening time. So there's still mm-hmm. like a lot of story in there too to be told, and obviously that's going to play a big part in kind of her compromising and just becoming a more battle hardened character. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of story to tell with Bo-Katan, and obviously we're just you know we're at the very first chapter right now. Mm-hmm. And this whole mission, she's asking for Mando's help. Like, hey, there's a bunch of weapons on here. We would like to get those weapons so that we can go back and reclaim Mandalore. And the Mandalorian's like, hey, not really my mission. Um, you know, whatever, best of luck. But he ends up going into this because we know, because we have seen the Clone Wars and Rebels, we know that she has had encounters with force sensitive beings and that she knows the location of some force sensitive beings and so this turns into where she kind of uses that to her advantage mm-hmm. and says okay just help us get the ship and then I'll tell you where to find uh, these Jedi mm-hmm. and there's a really uh, a fun piece of dialogue whenever Mando is sitting up there with the other uh, Mandalorians and we get another shot at the stormtroopers aim where the the one Mandalorian lieutenant like is basically says they couldn't hit the side of a bantha <laughs> and yeah. It just goes back to this very uh, John Favreau is very subtle at some and sometimes not so subtle. But in this instance, it was one of those. Yep. Star Wars fans know that clone troopers have a bad aim. It's been a laughing thing for clone troopers forever. We got some of that in season one. And now here we are again in season two with a nice little line that they couldn't hit the side of a bantha. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit of an understanding of our lieutenants at this point. And they're just as much gung ho for the cause as Bo-Katan. Like there's nothing sketchy about any of these people other than Bo-Katan's, you know, questionable morals. Um, that scene though, I want to, I want to go off on a rabbit trail just for a second. Mm-hmm. When they're on top of the razor crest and they're having this kind of moment where everybody is sort of relating their, their standpoint, there's a shot where Bo-Katan is either recessed in the frame or, yeah, is recessed in the frame and Mando is more in front of the frame or closer to frame. Might be the other way around. I can't remember. But anyways, there's there's a there's a difference in perspective between them. And I noticed when I was watching it, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can do that as a like a split diopter where you force both of them to be perfectly focused mm-hmm. or you can do focus pulling and you can move back and forth as each one's talking. The other one gets a little blurry because the focus shifts to the other person. That's what they did in this frame. But what I noticed was the background also bulk it out a little bit as they were focus pulling the characters. And it's occurring to me, well, they're in the volume, which means they must have the volume tech, the, the software so tuned in to what the camera's doing that when you do a focus pull in camera, mm-hmm. the LED screen actually compensates and calculates the distance of the background objects and then blurs them to match the focal length of the camera. And I'm thinking, okay, so they either fudge that in post, like that's a digital effect, or they've really even upped their game with what they can do in the volume. now. So anyways, that's just a little thing that I picked up on. I know that's only going to be of interest to maybe like one in a hundred of our listeners, but still for that one in a hundred that picked up on just how dialed in their tech is on even these subtle dialogue shots, you, you got to offer a chef's kiss to that because that's yeah. just great visuals. And to kind of go off of that as well, they might be trying to do some storytelling with the camera because 
anytime the Mando and Bo-Katan are in yep. a frame together, it's almost as if they're in conflict with one another. It's almost mm-hmm. as if they're conflicting. And so I wonder if this is leading up maybe a, a, a couple seasons down the line or whatever to a point where, like you were saying before, what if the Mandalorian has to make a choice between his current creed that he has taken mm-hmm. and because we know that the armorer, his former leader is very, very traditional. She, the armorer is yeah. the leader of this. If you want to call it a cult, Bo-Katan obviously wants to call it a sure. cult, but this is something that I'm wondering if this is going to come into conflict and if it's going to come around taking back Mandalore and the dark saber. I mean, we, we can go down a whole bunch of theories here, but that's something mm-hmm. that I noticed as well. Anytime that they were together, there was always kind of a contrast between the two of them as if it's setting up that they're they're right now they're on the same path but i think that their paths may fork off at some point and and cause a, a bit of a, a conflict and maybe that's a couple episodes arc maybe it's one episode arc maybe it never happens and i'm looking too much into it but i think that that's something they might <laughs> be preparing for here well there was definitely some beautiful shot composition and whatever emotions that evoke i i think i think it was all working for me cuz these scenes all felt very just very right uh the way they were staged so somewhere between the cinematographer and bryce dallas howard they were doing some good work but still a lot of show left to cover so why don't you get us into our next point well mandalorian of course only trusts one person on this planet so far and that of course is the passenger the frog lady and he takes the child back into the home with the eggs and (laughs) basically tells the child hey you know (laughs) <laughs> Keep your hands to yourself. You know what I'm talking about. But it's one of those things where I notice, like, oh, man, are we going to get some more uh, uncomfortable situations with, with the child and these and these eggs? But it was very quick to show us the eggs are now fertilized. They're hatching. And that even the child maybe not interested in eating them because later on we kind of see the child maybe playing with them or maybe reaching right. to eat them. It's more of but, a pet. Yeah. But this is he's left with this family. Mandalorian goes off. And we get a really cool, and I loved it so much because Bo-Katan, of course, classic character from animated series, but we get this awesome action sequence where we get to see these four Mandalorians just rip apart these stormtroopers on this ship. And it was such a fun sequence to watch because, of course, we have never seen Bo-Katan in a live action uh, series before or anything live action, and we get to see her in all of her glory in this this small little scene. And so I loved it. What, what do you think of them taking over the ship? Um, fun enough, but you, you just touched on something that again, I'm going to do a little diversion because I had so many feelings <laughs> during this episode. Uh, so just for my own therapeutic reasons, I need to get this out. Um, seeing Bo-Katan's uniform, her, her armor in live action gave me chills like how perfectly it translated because you, you never kind of know because the the cartoon characters like they can make the female sort of like more slight and you you don't really know like how that's going to look but they they just all really looked exactly the way i would have imagined and so there was there was a moment here where i'm watching you know our three live action mandos with the like the night owl coloring and and mm-hmm. um you know, imagery painted on their, their armor, just watching them kick butt. And I flashed back to a time when nine-year-old John went and saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the live action movie for the first time in the theater. And first off, when you go to see any movie in the theater, when you're nine, it's just like, that's just a big deal. Like that's so much fun. Yep. But 
the Ninja Turtles were things that I'd only ever seen in cartoon form, right? It's not like the cartoon was based on a movie. There was no other frame of reference. So seeing them translate to live action and just seeing them in the real world and how cool they looked. And that was like some really good Jim Henson mm-hmm. animatronic stuff that they did in that movie too. And just like how, just how well realized they were on the the big screen. It really like tickled me as a kid. And it, it just, I just remember that feeling of, Oh, I'm actually like seeing live action Ninja Turtles. And this is just like better than my imagination. And it was the same here. It seeing, you know, Bo-Katan and co, uh, Bo-Katan in particular, someone that we've only ever seen in animation, seeing how well it translated to the screen, seeing Katie Sackhoff's face and realizing there must have been a conscious decision to make Bo-Katan the animated character look like Katie Sackhoff, just maybe because they have um visual reference, like they're, they're videotaping her when she does her dialogue. So maybe they just want, they, they felt like they could preserve more of her character if they were they just kind of stayed in that design language of Katie Sackhoff's face. But she translates so perfectly. She takes off her mask and you're like, yeah, of course that's Bo-Katan. There's nobody else that could, could be Bo-Katan. Uh, and it's rare that a live action translation kind of hits that close to the mark. And it just really tickled me. And it brought me back to when I was nine. And I just thought, well, that's something worth saying. Cause it's, it's a rare treat to see something like that realized on live action. And even the hair, like that was the mm-hmm. most surprising point when she takes off the helmet. I'm like, that's that's exactly what the hair looks like. And I mean, we're talking about the Clone Wars where she's introduced and it's kind of this, you know, this wood carving type of exactly, animation. Yeah. And it's still like that fits so well. Yep. That is perfect. That's exactly how it should look. Bravo to mm-hmm. Filoni, Favreau and company, because this was an excellent uh Translation. We got that kind of mini, and of course, in Disney Gallery, they talk about designing the dark saber and, and right, their approach exactly. to it. And they kind of took the same approach here, which was really cool to see the final thing. And I know we were expecting it; we knew this was coming, but it still it still caught me off guard. It still gave me the chills, and it was an excellent excellent thing to to witness in real life. It was a big win. If uh, Filoni knew when he cast Katie Sackhoff that someday maybe we're going to want to see this in live action. And and that's why they just teed up everything. So perfect. If there was some conscious decision, mm-hmm. man, did it ever pay off last night? So, <laughs> yeah. and, and another great thing about this entire sequence was that because we haven't really witnessed the Mandalorians attacking anyone from the person being attacked perspective. And we get right. that here with the guys in the cockpit where, you know, the people coming over the comms are saying, oh, my gosh, we're getting attacked by pirates. There's like 20 or 10 of them. And then the guy looks at his monitor and says, it only that's shows four, four life forms. <laughs> right. And that's such a good uh, way to acknowledge, like, it would be terrifying to encounter a mm-hmm. Mandalorian if you are on the wrong side of things. Because, of course, they are killers and they will succeed in their mission. And so that was just a really cool thing to see uh, the, that perspective kind of unfold here. Yeah, they're kind of saying the potency of one Mandalorian is like five typical warriors or pirates. It's the the impression that four Mandalorians can give you just in their fury um, that feels like 20 men. Uh, it was a fun little moment. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there because we're going to be running long if we, we don't keep moving. But there was a lot to like about the ambush scene and then the little bait and switch where you think they're captured between the blast doors and Nope, miscalculation there, Mr. Uh, whatever, you know, cargo crew guy. So yeah, more fun to be had with that too. Yeah. 
And it seems that the captain is aware of what's going on. Like he immediately right. recognizes the mistake and says, wait, where'd you say you got where you trapped mm-hmm. them? And of course you get the last little cargo control area answer being sucked out into space. <laughs> but this is where we get Bo Katan's true, you know, her true reason that she's taking over this ship. Not only does she want to take back Mandalore, but she's kind of, you know, searching for the Arkenstone of this universe. She's trying to sure. figure out the thing that will unite her people. And what else is that than the Dark Saber? So she goes after they finally get into uh, the cockpit after some nice little Mando, you know, sacrifice here where he's just like, hey, cover me. (laughs) There wasn't a need for him to be covered because he was still getting shot up the whole time as he's running through the hall here. But it shows off how strong this armor is once again, how strong this Beskar and why it's so desired. I mean, of course, you would want some Beskar if it can if it can last through blaster fire like this. But Mm -hmm. we get when they get into into this cockpit and I want to go back one more uh one more second here is that the captain also knows to call in Moff Gideon himself because right. he realizes what is happening there is an awareness of this mission or uh like there's some sort of inkling that they understand what's going on and so they call in Moff Gideon who of course is the one with the dark saber right now mm-hmm. and he basically tells the captain to shoot his men and have a nice little suicide mission here. <laughs> yeah, Moff Gideon doesn't mess around. Uh, nice to have our first appearance of John Carlo Esposito this season, just to remind us that there is a larger menace that also has some sort of uh, bizarre fixation on Mandalorians. So mm-hmm. uh, we know that there's more, you know, more story to be told there. This was great. It, it's great that the Empire at this point, the, the remnants of it, the only ones that would still put on the uniform have to be the dyed in the wool believers. They have to be the zealots for the imperial cause. So yeah, you get this captain who without hesitation takes out his own guys and his guys know it's coming. They're, they're doing the math, right? Like they're yeah. like, Oh my goodness, this is going downhill. Uh, we already kind of know what our captain's like, uh, and they have to sit there and hear the order and they just, they're just, there's nothing they can do. They just have to sit there and, and take it. It, it was potent it was a potent scene just to remind you that the empire as much as stormtroopers can't shoot the you know the broadside of a bantha they're also in it to win it you know they they haven't given up and there's still a threat in the galaxy from these particular nuts these space nazis so yeah that was fun to see and then there was another uh space nazi callback when the captain himself you know mm-hmm. is is captured and questioned so uh, a lot to like about just the the stakes that they show in this and the again just the the brainwashing and the the willingness to go down with the ship and and sacrifice for the cause everybody in this episode they're all in it <laughs> you know they're they're all willing to do whatever needs to be done for their side and that that's fun television it feels like yeah. there's stakes and it's good writing. That's the best part. Is because sometimes in these old like Western shows, they just reunite with the cowboy from the last episode because you know let's bring back this this badass cowboy from last episode. Sure. But this one, it sets up exactly why we know now that Bo-Katan's what she wants is the dark saber, the Arkenstone of the Mandalorian. She wants mm-hmm. this to unite her people, and we know that Moff Gideon has that and he is actively pursuing the Mandalorian to retrieve the child. So we know that there's going to be a crossing of paths here, which sets up for a nice, you know, teaser. Like what happened? How come Bo-Katan knows who he is? So we know that there's been a previous conflict because she mm-hmm. basically asked, does he have it? Um, I know that there are some theories that she, uh, 
about someone else having it at this point, but I think that she is aware that Moff Gideon has it. We know Moff Gideon is kind of a Mandalorian nerd. He's like a Mm -hmm. whiz kid on Mandalorians. He knows where to, uh, where to best find them. The weaknesses in their armor. This guy knows his stuff. So it's really Mm -hmm. fun to see. And I hope that we get it in the, in the coming few episodes here, that this is going to be where they start crossing paths. And maybe, Moff Gideon has known where the Mandalorian is this whole time and is hoping that he goes after Ahsoka so that he can get a twofer. Now, that's, of course, reaching, but who knows what's going to happen here. It sets the stage up for an amazing sequence. And like like you said, that kind of Nazi type of behavior where it's like we're brainwashing you and we're all on the same page here. I don't even have to say anything. I just have Mm -hmm. to say, you know what to do and long live the Empire. Right. Yep. Well, I guess that's, you know, what you sign up for when you become a captain in the Imperial Navy. Yeah, so much fun. Uh, And then obviously, you know, the next step in this sequence is they burst in, they take control of the cockpit, they save the ship while at the same time questioning the captain. And he pulls a classic Nazi maneuver of chomping down on his space cyanide pill. Mm-hmm. So yeah, more fun. Just something that seems like the the obvious thing to happen in that situation. I'm not giving up any information. Mm-hmm. I know when the day is lost, yep. I'm cashing out before you guys can use me as a pawn for some yeah. other purpose. Um, so a, a fitting end for a scuzzy captain and, uh, you know, our, our heroes are able to land the ship, uh, though I'm sure there was a lot of fishermen that were none too pleased with yep. the, the wake that they left there in the harbor. But, uh, you know, all is well. And we get the final teaser of this mm-hmm. episode. Go to a forest planet of Corvus and find Ahsoka Tano. So we know this is happening there were still some questions. Where are we getting Ahsoka in this season? And I think, you know, there were a couple of trolls that were like, oh, we're not going to get it this season. But it looks like that's the route we're going. Now, I have my final theory of this episode. Okay. I think Bo-Katan is leading the Mando to a place that doesn't exist. I think the coordinates that she might be giving him or telling him where to go might be a place that Ahsoka is nearby. But we know that Ahsoka doesn't want to be found. We know that she wants to kind of to scope out the person before she reveals herself. So I think that's what's going on. I think Bo-Katan is giving this opportunity for Ahsoka to be the one to reveal herself to the Mandalorian. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but that's kind of my theory is that he's going to go and he's going to think he was betrayed by Bo-Katan and then Ahsoka is going to pop up. Hmm, it's possible. I, I had a different read on it because at this point in the episode, Bo-Katan has seen the Mandalorian single mindedness mm-hmm. for this cause. She, she has seen him in battle. She knows that he's not duplicitous. He's pure of heart in a way, right? Like his cause is not in conflict with hers. It's not in conflict with Ahsoka's. He just wants to get this, you know, foundling to Ahsoka. And at this point, she's already kind of double crossed him once on their deal or, or, you know, like played fast and loose with the terms. Mm-hmm. So I feel like. At this point, she's saying to herself, the guy did the job. He did everything he was supposed to. We won the day. We got the ship. I got to throw him a bone. So I don't think it's a misdirection. I I think much like all the other leads that he's gotten, there's still a lot of ground to cover when he gets to that planet, right? Like Mm -hmm. he he gets these leads on what system he has to go to or what planet he has to go to. But that doesn't mean that he's just going to be able to like knock on Ahsoka's door. So Mm -hmm. however that happens, if the force, you know, leads Ahsoka to him or the the baby knows the way, like some sort of weird divining rod, who knows how that's going to play out. 
but at this point, I think Bo-Katan is playing it straight with him and giving him all she knows. Because I have a feeling she couldn't knock on Ahsoka's door if she wanted to either. She just kind of knows maybe the last time their paths crossed. So that's that was my take on it. I feel it's a little more straightforward. Mm-hmm. And my last thought on this episode is that I am glad that they are off this planet now because, I mean, this is <laughs> nothing is more fearful to me than water and as the open ocean. <laughs> and we get all of my fears realized here, especially in the Razor Crest, this last little part with the child where this thing is very mm. creepily crawling towards <laughs> him. We know that it has multiple oh, eyes and we get to see what it sees in the child. And like you said before, everything is just trying to eat something else. Yeah, no, this was a fun little capper. Uh, yeah. Cause we saw the little baby squid try it. We know that they're face huggers that they'll, they'll go in for the, the chomp, even if they're, they're grossly outsized. But in this case, you've got a squid that could definitely mow down on baby Yoda, but no, in the nick of time, Mando saves the day. And, uh, fortunately none of the squids compound eyes caught him, you know, <laughs> reaching out for it. Uh, and then, you know, baby turns around and eats it. So it's a little bit of a, you know, an, an about face there. And it just, again, reminds you, everything's available to be eaten in this galaxy. It just, <laughs> just, I don't know. It's fun being in the, the outer rim because the lawlessness just makes everything so easy, right? Like Bo-Katan and crew just touch down in the middle of the Harbor and murder a half a dozen Corins, and no sheriff is going to come knocking, right? Like you can just do this and then head off for a drink. And that's just the world that we're living in, in the outer rim. So, um, yeah, just kind of fun that again, just eat or be eaten in this, this particular galaxy and uh, a fun little bit of anxiety, you know, to cap off the episode. Once you think all is well, and they're just going to fly away, just one, one more little, one more little beat just to have some fun. Um, all in all pretty darn satisfying episode. It is so great because now we have a direct path for the Mandalorian. He knows where he's going. He knows what he has to find at this point. He has a name that he is going for, and it leaves us on quite the uh, cliffhanger here. So I'm super excited to experience the rest of the season of the Mandalorian. Next week, we will get chapter 12. We are halfway, about halfway through the season now, and Mm. I have a feeling everything's going to pick up. But John, until then, where can the people find you? If anyone is interested in Saturday Night Live or anything that's been going on with their election coverage and all the fun of trying to produce a live hour and a half sketch comedy show in the midst of COVID, uh, they can check out my other podcast, SNL After Party on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. We have a lot of fun. We break down every new episode, do a sketch by sketch recap. Yeah. So if that's your cup of tea, come find us, SNL After Party. And you can keep up with this show throughout the week on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk and by emailing us at hello at Star Wars TV Talk.com. You can find the rest of our episodes on our website at Star Wars TV Talk.com and by searching for Star Wars TV Talk wherever you get your podcasts. And please hit that subscribe button. You can find our TV Talk network at TV Talk.fm. Thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you always. <laughs>